This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Dr. Hader Varish, his recent book, Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life. Dr. Varish, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, David, for uh, having me. Uh, Hader's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, 2.6 million Americans die annually, over half of these from heart and lung disease and cancer. Of these, not surprisingly, 2.1 million, or 8 out of 10, were Medicare beneficiaries, making the Medicare program the largest insurer of medical care provided at the end of life. From a Medicare utilization perspective, while these 2.1 million represent less than 4% of the 55 million Medicare beneficiaries, Medicare beneficiaries in the last year of life account for about 25% of total Medicare spending. So I'll leave that um, as background or introduction. So let me begin. Uh, your work um, uh, starts with, and I'll read this from your introduction, the line between life and death has become far more blurry. These days we can't even be sure if someone is alive or dead without getting a battery of tests. While death may be a primitive concept, most people have very little idea what modern death is all about. So let me ask you uh, uh, first, what is modern death, or what would be a reasonable, accurate definition or characterization of modern death? Well, you know, I think um, I think that's an important uh, question to just uh, set up the table here for this discussion. Um, so. Modern death is basically the cumulative, cumulatively evolved experience of the end of life uh, that the vast majority of people now experience in um, industrialized or high-income countries. I just made that up, but I think it's, it's I think it's a good setup. You know, again, we're not here talking about outliers. Um, you know, we're there's still people who. Um, who die young, who die suddenly, uh, but for the vast majority, as you've indicated, eight out of ten people um, die after uh, the age of 65. Um, and um, you know, I think the one thing to mention here is that you know, medical care has advanced more over the past few decades and has uh, extended our lifespan more over the past 150 years than we did over the first 200,000 years of our existence. So what we've experienced uh, as a species is something unprecedented. Um, there is a paper published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Science which showed that the extent of lifespan extension that we as human beings have achieved in the last 150 years has never been replicated, even in a laboratory, even with bacteria or single-celled organisms. That's how dramatic, um, dramatically human lifespan has changed. Um, and that is one of the single most greatest contributions of science to our, our to our species. And um, 
but at the same time, even as we appreciate that, I think it is important to recognize that there have been changes um, that have not been so optimal. Uh, more people die uh, in places there where they would not like to die than they did before. The vast majority of surveys show that people, by and large, prefer to pass away at home. Uh, in a familiar surrounding, but the majority of Americans and other people in high-income countries are unable to do so these days. Right. You say less than one in five, correct? Yes. Yes, one in five. And that's now getting close to about uh, a quarter now. There has been a reversal, but yes, it's still uh, less than about, you know, about three quarters of people die in some type of healthcare facility, whether that's a hospital, emergency room, or a nursing home. Um and uh, what we've also seen is that we've also seen a proliferation of uh, invasive procedures, life-sustaining measures uh, that are particularly concentrated when people are at the end of life. These include uh, mechanical ventilators, uh, feeding tubes, um, other types of devices um, that are we are still, as you know, people getting used to and try, still trying to understand what role they play in our lives. Um, so yes, so 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 even though life has changed and we've had a lot of great progress, we also have sort of new challenges that we still need to sort of reckon with as a society. Thank you. So to pick up on your invasive procedures uh, comment, uh, modern death has a fair amount to do with Karen Ann Quinlan. Uh, since mm-hmm. her case now dates back over 40 years, and since you spend several pages detailing. What did we learn from, or how has modern death been defined by her dying? So Karen, uh, just to, for readers, was a teenager in New Jersey in the early 70s when she um, uh, stopped breathing, likely after uh, drinking, uh, after every night of drinking, uh, an ambulance was called and she ended up being connected to a ventilator. Um, she uh, became the subject of a very lengthy but very significant legal battle between her parents who wanted to withdraw life-sustaining measures and her doctors who wanted to continue them. Um, This case was eventually decided by the New Jersey Supreme Court who ruled in favor of the parents saying that they did have, in fact, a right um, to... A right to uh, privacy. A right to privacy, that was the central sort of ethical principle based on which they uh, they ruled that the parents did have the right to uh, make medical decisions, uh, including withdrawal of treatment on um, Karen's behalf. Uh, and that resonates to this very day. I think that was the first uh, time that, you know, patients were really um, given uh, the the sort of high chair in medical decision-making. You know, medicine had been a very paternalistic uh, uh, profession for a very long time, and this was the first time that the patients and or their family members and their loved ones were uh, really given the mantle of decision-making and were given the authority to make some very, very important decisions for themselves or for um, their loved ones. And that, in that sense, it has been a very, very positive um, uh, development. Having said that, it also uh, set the stage for uh, the end of life being a really fraught area, which was at the um, <clears throat> intersection of medicine, uh, sociology, uh, religion, um, the legal system, um, etc., etc., and um, and it was taken away from being a 
uh, a personal experience to being one that is, in many ways, heavily regulated um, and uh, and incredibly deeply scrutinized by the media. Okay, thank you. We could go on to subsequent cases, uh, for example, the Terry Schiavo case uh, mm-hmm. and others. You mentioned uh, loved ones, so that sets up uh, the family caregiver issue. So let's talk about uh, family caregivers. Uh, one consequence of modern death is the advent of family caregivers. People persist for in, at times for years with serious advanced illness. So in part, you know, one in four American adults uh, provides informal care uh, at any given moment. The vast majority are women. Family caregivers would have been a $450, $450 billion business in 2009. And moreover, family caregivers have a 63% higher risk of dying than those not involved in caregiving. Despite these facts, you recognize healthcare ignores caregivers. Quote unquote, their needs are largely undressed, and physicians haven't figured out how to either provide care for them or leverage their services. Close quote. And as a, and I can personally test this having been my mother's family uh, caregiver for probably close to a decade now. Why is mm-hmm. this, or how much longer will this go on, meaning we haven't been able uh, to incorporate uh, the caregiver? So, uh- you know, I, I think what you've what you've you've given a great summary of a problem that I, I think only now are people starting to pay attention to. Um, you know, caregiving. Uh, you know, people have always, especially when we've been, you know, when people are at the end of life, they always, you know, become um, uh, dependent for care for people around them. But you know, the nature of caregiving has become very, very different. The the number of years that people live with disability has increased over time. So the number of years that people live in which they're unable to take care of themselves is more today than it has been before. Uh, you've also seen the advent of diseases uh, such as Alzheimer's, which is perhaps the most burdensome of diseases for caregivers because really, um, you know, because of the almost irreversible uh, aspect of uh, Alzheimer's, many of those caregivers don't have any hope for improvement from all the years and, you know, decades that they um, end up taking care of their loved ones. Um, so it is a it is a huge problem, and we've also now recognized, as you said, that that there are very serious health consequences for patients, uh, for caregivers of uh, sick patients. So I think we've reached this point where you know I think we've we've assessed the problem as a community, as a medical community, as a society, and we've sort of recognized it. But I think that there's still more that we can do in this space. I think many people still don't realize just how many people are involved in caregiving and how there is this huge um, gender mismatch in who does the caregiving. Uh, you know, there's some statistics suggesting that, you know, women outnumber men eight to one as far as caregiving is concerned. And that just seems like another social responsibility that has been placed on women's shoulders, um, you know, after... Um, so I think one of the things that we need to do as a society is that I think men need to really sort of uh, lean in, so to speak, to borrow Cheryl Sanders' right. Um, right. quote uh, in caregiving, and they need to be more involved uh, with their loved ones as they grow elderly. And they need to also, um, men also need to take better care of themselves. Uh, caring for men 
um, places a great uh, weight on women's um, women's shoulders and on their health. So certainly, I think that's an area that you know we can improve. But as physicians, you know, I think we can just start by just recognizing it. You know, one of the things that I re- that I have started doing after I wrote the book was I just I just start by asking. I just start by uh, you know I I, I talk to the patient uh, who is obviously there to see me and my role uh, with regards to them is very well defined. I'm their physician, they're my patient. The role my role for the caregiver is less well defined because they're not there seeing me any type of in any type of official capacity. But that doesn't stop me from just asking the question, how are you doing? Um, you know, how is how is this affecting you? Is there anything that, you know, you would like to add? I, I think what we need to recognize is that, you know, we we have these immense great partnerships that we can develop with caregivers as physicians, as a medical community, because in the end, as physicians, we can only do so much. We can only see patients, you know, once in, you know, a week, maybe, you know, sometimes in the hospital. But in the end, uh, the patients are dependent on their caregivers for, um for their, you know, day-to-day lives. So I think as physicians, by ignoring them, we're actually giving up an opportunity uh, to really partner with caregivers and really come up with plans as a team um, to make uh, to, to reach um, a point where the patient receives the best possible care, but also that the caregivers' efforts are recognized. You know, that one of the, that's one of the things that I've was found during when I was writing the book was that a lot of times, you know, caregivers don't want, you know, they don't want they don't want to be paid for their services. They're doing what they're doing because out of love. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what they do need is recognition. I think what they do need is recognition. They do need a voice. That it does need to be, that it does need to be noted that um, what they're doing is important, and that they are part of the team. They are part of the solution. So, I think that's something that's an easy fix. That I think any physician, or nurse, or nurse practitioner, or, uh, or anyone involved in the healthcare field can do, um, and that's a good place to start. Thank you. So, uh, one aspect of modern death is sadly too often family caregivers become, as the data suggests, certainly collateral uh, damage. Mm -hmm. Let's go to um, uh, the issue of patient preferences. Again, this is uh, a daunting subject in in this context. In your chapters titled, How Death is Negotiated and Why Families Fail, you discuss advanced directives and living wills um, and show that uh, these instruments or documents have largely proved to be failures. Uh, why is this, and can we actually get some uh, advantages from these, or are these ideas in theory sensible, but in practice uh, they don't play out to be effective? Uh, or alternatively, should we just uh, abandon these ideas? So I think the idea behind you know, pointing healthcare proxies and having advanced directives or having all the additional documentation that, you know, is proliferating around defining patient preferences at the end of life. They're all fantastic ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why uptake of these documents is limited is because of something that's very basic. And that that thing is that, you know, as, 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 as a species, as a society, we... Uh, hate talking about death, mm-hmm. um, and and that's something that's been present since um, you know um, centuries. Uh, you know, just the mere mention of death, and not uh, and, and that I mean in a personal way. I mean, we are 
you know, we as a society, we are obsessed with death. We, uh, you know, that's every the whole or the news cycle is for you know centered around it. Television shows, movies, etc. But when it comes to us as people, as persons on an individual level, I think we're all afraid of facing up to um, the fact that you know all of us will die, and that is that is the only. Uh, uh, thing that we can consistently predict about anyone's life is that, you know, one day they will die. Uh, and I think unless we change that culture, um, then the rates the bio, uh, of advanced directives being filled are going to remain very limited. And what, what basically ends up happening is even people who do think about death do so when they are in the very clutches of it, where that's usually in the intensive care unit or when they come to the hospital or when someone is actively dying. And to me, that is the worst time to be making any type of important decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think one of the things that I hope to achieve from the book, as you know, others have, and you know, I'm lucky to follow in this, uh, uh, in you know, the, in the footsteps of giants uh, like Atul Dewande and Sherman Newland is that, you know, I really wanted um, to broaden the conversation. I, you know, my hope is that, you know, as a society, uh, we realize that these are important things and that talking about them can actually change the type of outcome we experience. It used to be, you know, for, for centuries, you know, talking about death doesn't actually lead to any meaningful benefit or change because we had so little control over death. We had, there was no medicine, there was no way of predicting it, there was no treatments. Everything was just placebo, basically. And But now, I think talking about death can actually lead to us being able to dictate or define certain characteristics or certain things that we may or may not want at the end of life. So I think it's important. And um, and I think, unless, but unless we um, make death a part of normal conversation, uh, then we will continue to run into ob- obstacles. And we actually use the phrase now, uh, a good death that patients can experience as, as oxymoronic as that may sound. Um, one could experience a good death to the extent at least that their preferences were honored. Uh, let me go to uh, a very substantial uh, issue in all this, and, and this is uh, in your concluding chapters, which I found particularly candid, uh, to your credit titled, When Death is Desired and When the Plug is Pulled. In these you discuss euthanasia, state legalization of physician-assisted suicide now in uh, five states in D.C., and terminal or palliative sedation. These reflect the reality that, as you state, under modern state of affairs, it is really difficult for someone to fully pass without a physician almost allowing it to happen. Um, Your comments on this, uh, and I'll just read one from the text, uh, where you say, again, it's really difficult for someone to pass without a physician almost allowing it to happen. And um, you conclude by saying, I've come to the conclusion that we must do more to discuss and support competent terminally ill patients' right to demand and acquire the means to end their suffering with the aid of a physician. Uh, That sentence is very controversial, as I'm sure you know. Um, And I did, when we set this up, I did note you debated exactly on this issue. Uh, I believe it was on Diana Reem's Fresh Air program with Ira Bayok, uh, Mm -hmm. this exact issue, to what extent should physicians be involved in assisting uh, the patient at their end? What um, could you say more relative to your perspective about uh, physicians being more proactive in assisting uh, to end their suffering 
as you note. Sure. Um, so, David, you know, when I started writing the book, I really didn't have any... Um, I was personally opposed to um, physician-assisted death, and that's because um, I really think hadn't really thought about it much. But the more I studied the topic and the, the more I thought about this and the more patient encounters and patient stories I read, I realized I think one of the things that we can all recognize is that um, death is one of the, is you know, in most people's lives, a single uh, most painful, uh, gut-wrenching event that can ever happen, but also that it is the one event that, you know, that we can, none of us can control. Um, and I think in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, I think the most important thing that we as physicians can do is that we can be attentive to what patients want and we have the tools to be able to ease their suffering as much as possible. Um, in a very, very small number of cases that we need to recognize and we need to be humble as physicians that we will not be able to do so. There will be cases in which we will not be able to provide patients with relief um, at the end of life. And, um, you know, what I what I realized from writing about this was that this really wasn't about suicide. This was, you know, these are patients who are terminally ill. They're going to pass away regardless. Uh, it was really about patients wanting to have some amount of control, not about the fact that, that they live or die, but about how that death might look like. And I feel like as a physician, I should not stand in their way. In fact, um, I should do my very best to make sure that their suffering is eased, that I think about palliative care, which is something that I also believe in uh, strongly, but also that there will be a small amount, a small number of patients for whom that may not be enough, who may want to have more control over what their end looks like. And at that point, rather than being a barrier, uh, I should be someone um, who is on their side. So that's how I came to this position. So the, the argument is that at some point, patients uh, advance to this point of what's termed existential suffering. They'll never recover. Uh, their mm -hmm. fate is certain. Uh, so the question becomes, to what extent should the physician uh, make their last hours uh, most comfortable uh, and mm -hmm. pain-free? And that gets us to what, again, you said we rephrase from terminal to palliative uh, sedation. Um, mm -hmm. Let me go. Uh, so obviously in some, modern death has become ever increasingly complex. Uh, mm -hmm. The subtitle of your book, How Medicine Changed the End of Life, begs the question on balance, has medicine changed the end of life or end of life care for the better? Uh, realizing there's a lot of dimensions to this, but mm -hmm. would you at least be willing to say that for all the advances we've made in uh, caring for the terminally ill, we also have caused unintentionally or created unintentionally uh, any number of attendant complications? Sure. You know, I think I, I think this is a great time to be writing this book and, and to have written this book and to be thinking about this. I think the first few decades after we made progress in some certain areas, such as in CPR, um, uh, resuscitation, you know, life-sustaining measures, you know, ventilators, etc., 
I don't think that we did a good job of helping people or, or, or thinking about what this, what all these technologies meant. You know, there's a lot of stories that I detail in the book as well of you know pe- people who got a lot of treatments against their will. They were forced to undergo CPR even when if they didn't want to. And you know, those were those were dark times for medicine. But I think what has happened is that there has been increased recognition over the past. Um, you know, especially the last ten years, I would say that you know there, there that that we need to be that as physicians we need to take responsibility for every aspect of a patient's care, and that does include when they are uh, at the end of life, um, and that the patient, in fact, is probably the best person to be able to define what that should look like. Um, so I think we're 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 we've reached. A, I think I'm, I'm, my hope is that you know we've reached an inflection point, uh, and that from now on uh, we will take more responsibility not just for extending people's lives, which we have done so successfully, and which I I will continue to do so with uh, all the energy I have, but also to and recognize that at some point. Um, more may not be the right answer. More, and by more, that, that doesn't mean more care, because we can always care for patients. But more, uh, you know, supposedly life-sustaining or life-prolonging treatments, because a lot of times, you know, the same treatments that we think are prolonging life may actually shorten them uh, due to complications. Mm-hmm. Well, Hader, thank you uh, for your time. Sadler at our uh, time boundary. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Very complicated subject. I wish you the best with the book and your future research and writing. Thank you again. Thank you so much, David, for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.